This is an ABC podcast. Pack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. You're on the Summer Hack podcast and we'll actually be back to our regular podcast radio show format next week. But now we're bringing you the best of our stuff from the past year. And that includes a chat we had with an incredible Australian. She lived through hunger, solitary confinement, filthy conditions, and she had no idea whether she'd ever see her family and friends again. Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert was arrested trying to leave Iran in 2018. She ended up spending more than 800 days locked up in one of the most notorious prisons in the world. She was charged with being a spy, something she's always denied. This story is extraordinary. Like, it's basically a movie script. But for Kylie, it was her life. And it's crazy to think how just a regular person from Australia can end up in a situation like this with all sorts of high-level negotiations between governments taking place in secret. And luckily, Kylie's now with us and able to share this story. She's written about it in a book that came out last year called The Uncaged Sky. So many of you were fascinated with this tale and were sending in questions for Kylie Moore Gilbert about her experience. And obviously, one of the big ones that you were asking me was, ask her, is she a spy? Was she a spy? Well, I did actually ask her. And she answered, this is my chat with Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert. Summer Hack on Triple J. Kylie, thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I actually really love Hack and I really love Triple J. So it's a real pleasure to be on here. I want to take people back to nearly the beginning of your story. You were arrested as you were getting ready to leave Iran. You were at the airport trying to board a flight. What happened? Yeah, so I visited Iran for three weeks. I was invited there by an Iranian university to participate in an academic seminar. And I'd checked into my flight, dropped off my luggage and was on my way to passport control when a group of men approached me. They weren't wearing uniforms. Uh, They were just plain clothes, tapping on the shoulder and said that I'm under arrest. I need to come with them. I didn't know why I was being arrested and I didn't know where I was. So it was really quite bewildering and, and terrifying. And reading your book, it was clear at the beginning you really had no idea how long you'd be kept in Iran and you thought in the beginning it'd just be for a few days. You were telling your family, oh, I'll be back soon. When did you realise you were in real trouble and that you wouldn't be coming home for a while? When I was thrown into Evin prison in solitary confinement, I understood that I was in deep trouble. At the beginning, I was kept in a hotel for one week and interrogated on a daily basis. They were lying to me. They were telling me, oh, you'll go home in a few days. We'll buy your ticket ourselves. We just need you to answer all of our questions and then we'll send you home. So I cooperated with them because I hadn't done anything wrong. I thought, well, this is just one colossal misunderstanding. But because they'd lied to me and tricked me about that, I couldn't really believe anything else they said to me following. And once they'd thrown me into prison and I was in this horrible, tiny, windowless box of a solitary confinement cell... I understood that I couldn't rely on anything they said. I was possibly going to be there for some time. Well, you ended up spending more than 800 days in prison in Iran. You endured some of the worst conditions that people can imagine. What was a typical day for you like in prison? It really depends on the period of time we're talking about. I spent a few months in solitary at the very beginning. I spent seven months in solitary throughout 2020, but I also had periods of time where I had roommates, some of whom became really good friends of mine. 
and for three months, I was in a public prison called Kachak, which is uh, which was a very different experience. It was 100 women sleeping together in one room. So I went. I was in a number of different environments for that 804 days. A solitary confinement cell. My first one was 2.5 by 2.5 meters. There was no window. There were no no furnishings at all. No bed. No mattress. No pillow. Uh, it was me and four cold walls and a, an old dirty carpet on the floor. 23 hours a day trying to entertain my mind with zero stimulation. Uh, it was really, really tough. And I, you know, everybody goes a little bit insane uh, in such circumstances. Well, in your book, you write, my understanding of myself is a unique human being with a personality and a character with likes and dislikes, with talents, with a moral compass, with dreams and ambitions slowly diminished. It sounds obviously like torture and it was really how did you keep yourself sane while you were being kept in those conditions? Yes, uh, solitary confinement for prolonged periods of time is classified as torture by the UN. And actually, it's psychological torture, so much so that you actually can feel physical pain from the psychological pain. Um, everybody works differently. You know, I've spoken about this with lots of other prisoners who'd been in solitary. Everybody develops different coping strategies. Mine was. And it wasn't deliberate. My brain just sort of went there of its own accord. Mine was to slow down my brain, minimise all understanding of myself as a unique human being, as as you quoted my book there, and just live in the day-to-day, live in the moment, focus on everyday tasks like eating, going to the toilet, sleeping, and close down every facet of my mind that wasn't necessary for those tasks. And I would live in my memories, you know, I'd often lie on the floor with a blanket over my head and just close my eyes and think about my childhood and spend hours just traversing the different memories of Kylie 20 years ago in childhood uh, and, and not notice the passage of time. And my brain did that after about two weeks of solitary. The first two weeks were the toughest. Then your brain adapts and you play tricks, mental tricks, mental games with yourself to cope. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Dave Marchese and I'm speaking with Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert who spent years in jail in Iran accused of being a spy. She's got a new book out now. One of the really heartwarming parts of your story, Kylie, is when you struck up this friendship with some other prisoners but you couldn't speak to them, which is pretty remarkable. What happened there? Yeah, for the first 12 months or so, I was in touch via a note passing network that we'd set up with a couple of other cells. And this progressed over time. We developed more and more sophisticated methods of writing to each other. We started off with the pot plants outside in um, the outside exercise area where we were taken once or twice a day uh, separately. And um, I later developed a method of cutting the hem, the inside hem of the bottom of a pair of uniform prison uniform trousers and inserting a small rolled note into that hem. And then um, we would pass these pants around by hanging them on the communal clothes drying rack. So we we had a variety of different schemes going and some of them would get busted and we'd get punished and others like that uh, hem in the pants scheme were actually never discovered. The crazy thing about that is you were kind of developing spy-like tactics and you were being (laughs) accused of being a spy. Like, that's just crazy to think about, right? 
I know, I know. Honestly, it's true what they say about prison. You learn to be a criminal in prison. Um, you become devious, you scheme, you, you know, you have to rely on these strategies in order to survive, really. Well, you were accused in Iran of being a spy, an Israeli spy, an Australian spy, but then the same people who were accusing you of being a spy then made you an offer to become a spy for them. What happened there? Yeah, they, I think it was one of their objectives from the first night of my arrest. They saw an opportunity. I was an academic in Middle Eastern studies, so I would sometimes travel to various parts of the Middle East. I'd visited Israel. They were interested in the UK as well, and I'm a UK citizen. So they offered me, in exchange for my freedom, to make a deal where I would work for them. I would travel to various Middle Eastern countries and the UK, collect information, and in exchange they would free me. But I rejected this deal because I knew I actually wouldn't truly be free if I submitted to such an such a role. They would have something over me. They would threaten my life. They would control me from then on out. And I wanted to walk out of jail as a truly free woman, not beholden to the revolutionary cast for the rest of my life. For a long time when you were in jail, it was kept out of public view and the Australian government was keen to work behind the scenes thinking that would be more effective. What do you think of how the government handled your situation? I'm very grateful to the government for securing my release. I think it took time for them to prioritise my case. So I understand why the government and DFAT and the, the diplomats would prefer a quiet approach. It's less of a headache for them, less pressure on them. People aren't breathing down their necks and asking, what are you doing? Have you done enough? Analysing what they are or might not be doing for me. So I think there are reasons why they would prefer that approach, but those reasons aren't necessarily in my best interests. And when I was a prisoner, I very much saw once my plight was made public that my conditions did improve and more care and attention was paid to my uh, medical situation, for example. So I did see that there was an immediate benefit to me as a prisoner for having my plight made public. Kylie, your story has a lot of twists, including when one of your captors, the main guy who's harassing you and questioning you, the enemy, all of a sudden develops feelings for you. Gosh, it's so complicated, but this person had been a prominent figure from the very beginning of my arrest. I had a very acrimonious relationship with him initially. I was fighting him. There were sort of ego, um, macho, ego games, you know, like he was alpha male, had to be in charge, had to call the shots. In At the beginning of 2020, our relationship shifted from being this conflictuous, acrimonious thing to being one of kind of bizarre, flirty banter and he was sort of courting me in a way. And I had to grapple with that whilst being in solitary confinement when he had power over every aspect of my life. I really did, you know, try to leverage his partiality for me to benefit myself, to get information about the negotiations, to improve my prison conditions. You write in the book that it could have been that you spent many more months in jail because you refused this guy. Yes. uh, He cancelled a diplomatic deal that had been negotiated three days before its execution. So the Australians had thought they'd sealed the deal. 
and three days out, the Revolutionary Guards cancelled it. Well, eventually you were able to be freed and come back to Australia and resume your life. And thankfully that's happened. But when you got back, your life had changed. You know, you found out your husband had moved on. People probably think when you're released, that's it, you're finally free. How hard is it adjusting back to life after an experience like that? Most people think that the beginning is the hardest, that you'll come back and you'll be like a quivering wreck. I didn't have that experience. I was on an absolute high when I was released for probably six months or so. It's only over time when things have settled a bit emotionally for me that I've come to understand that, of course, there are scars and, of course, it's had some impact on me. My whole life's been turned upside down, you know, not just my personal life, my professional life as well. Uh, You know, you come to understand things about people in your life who had your back and who didn't, who stood by you, who was missing in action. You know, some of these things are difficult to grapple with and come to terms with too upon returning from such an ordeal. Kylie, there are probably some people out there who've heard small parts of your story, not the whole lot, and they think, oh, she must have done something in Iran. Like, maybe she was a spy. What What would you say to those people? I would say to them what I said to the Revolutionary Guards themselves. If I really was a spy, you wouldn't have caught me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um Dr. Kylie Moore-Gilbert, there aren't many people in the world who could understand what you've been through. We've covered your story here at Triple J um, for as long as we've been able to. And it's pretty emotional for me to interview you because there were definitely times when I was talking about you on air and I thought, I don't know how this story is going to finish. And I'm just so glad that it's finished like this with me being able to speak with you today. So I very much appreciate you coming and speaking with us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. Honestly, it's such a pleasure to talk to you too. And thank you to Triple J for everything you've done over the years to publicise and draw attention to my plight while I was in prison. I really appreciate it. And I've been listening to Triple J since I was a teenager. It's, it's so amazing to be on your station. So yeah, thanks for having me. Summer Hack on Triple J.